is the Hail Mary Podcast. Welcome in. It's Wednesday, February 18th, and this is the relaunch of the Hail Mary Podcast. We've upgraded from SoundCloud to now Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and like five other streaming services. With that, back better than ever with an action-packed show today. We have college basketball, baseball, and a surprise on the slate. I feel like I speak for a lot of people when I say the college basketball regular season has absolutely flown by. We are less than a month out from Selection Sunday. It could be because this is my first year out of college and being submerged into the workforce doesn't allow you to marinate in that collegiate sports environment. But regardless, what a season this has been. And what I mean by that is so many programs have shined in a year where things are very wide open heading into March Madness. It's weird how many major sports are in that phase right now. The NHL, NFL, NBA, all leagues that have prior had remarkable dominance by a team or teams similar to college basketball with your Villanovas, UNCs, and Dukes. So who will it be this year? Conference championships begin in the second week of March, which is quickly approaching. And I can say right now in the season, I'm ready to give my top three favorites heading into March Madness. Three, making my margin for error like a needle in a haystack, but that's how confident I feel in these three teams. I'm psyched for this. The trip just got booked to be in Vegas the week of the Sweet 16. I'll be there ready to relax, watch, and bet. All right. The first of my top three with the best shot at winning the title is the Kansas Jayhawks. Yes, they're fresh in the dome after watching them thrash Iowa State Monday night. But in actuality, this team has been at the top of my radar all season long. As of right now, Ken Palm has them comfortably at number one. Yes, they have three losses against Duke in the season opener, Villanova in Philadelphia, and Baylor. But most of their 23 wins have been against quality opponents. And they're winning games with a powerhouse of a defense. Azabuki is in his prime right now. The Big 12 is showering him with honors. And rightfully so. He's one of the nation's best shot blockers and is scratching the surface of history with his efficient shooting. Partially because he has 81 dunks this season. Second most in the nation behind Dayton's top in. And overall, He has just developed into a really nice force on both ends of the court. Head coach Bill Self has it all figured out with Azabuki, Devin Dotson, Christian Braun, and so on. Last week I read that Kansas has the most Quadrant 1 wins in the country and the most Quadrant 1 and 2 wins in the country, supporting my case for those quality, quality, quality wins. All right, number two a team I watch more than UCLA and Iowa State just because of my admiration for how they run their men and women basketball programs. They're currently number three on Ken Palm's rankings, and it's the Baylor Bears, another Big 12 team. This team is defense times a million. Baylor is impressive, and I'll tell you why. There are things different for this squad this year, most notably their style of defense, and second, their smaller yet extremely effective lineup. In fact, 
They held Kansas to their second lowest points per possession on the season when they met amidst January and Baylor won 67-55. The Bears' line combinations and depth is unmatched compared to the rest of the league. It starts with the backcourt, Jared Butler, Macy Oteague, Davion Mitchell, and Deontay Bandu. Bandu off the bench, might I mention, which bringing him off the bench speaks volumes. Defensively, they sport a 2018-19 Texas Tech-style defense that brought Texas Tech to the national championship game last year. The no-middle defense, where your perimeter defenders don't allow the offense to use the middle of the floor, pushing them towards the baseline, creating absolute havoc. A big part in why that defense has shut down so many great teams over the course of the season. Though, Baylor has an opposite problem of Kansas. They struggle offensively to get those points at the rim. And overall, just that side of the court in its entirety, just isn't as productive. Although it has been proven to me many times before, too many times before, that you go as far as your defense can take you. So I'm rolling with it. Baylor is my number two team to potentially win the championship. Last, for a shot at the title, don't mind that I'm skipping like 66 games to pick the winner here, but I'm going with I wanted to put Seton Hall here because Miles Powell is one of my favorite ballers to watch. And the Zags are convincing, but their backcourt is egregious. And, man, SCSU is tough right now. Strong on both ends of the court. But the Mountain West Conference, eh. Who's going to beat Duke? I tried to make arguments and I couldn't. If they stay healthy and Wendell Moore is feeling good, that's big time. A much younger team than years past. But this team speaks for itself. So... Kansas, Baylor, and Duke are my three picks on who has a chance at winning the college basketball championship. All right, that's enough college basketball. Let's switch gears now to a league that's not even in season, but somehow causing the most emotional turmoil, and that is the MLB and its blockbuster trades and its handling of the Astros cheating scandal. I won't dive in too much with the cheating scandal, because there's really nowhere to go from here. Athletes, analysts, and all of the above have said something needs to be done. But there's literally nothing that can be done. Nothing can be fixed when you prematurely grant an entire team of players that actively participated in the cheating scandal with full immunity. With a situation as delicate as this, it's hard for me to agree with how a manager, general manager, one-year suspension and a fine was the best judgment call when you're trying to investigate the situation. That's the best outcome you had. Let's just punish these guys and distribute the max fine, and we'll just take the players out of the equation. For Mike Trout to have talked to players on the Astros that he's buddies with and still come out and publicly say that they need to be dealt a punishment for me, speaks volumes. You kind of just have to move on and assess that 2017 title in your own personal way. For me, it was a year that the Dodgers splurged everything that they had to put together a championship team, and their one kryptonite was portions of their bullpen. Of course, the cheating scandal doesn't help, but that's where it ends. 
And now the Dodgers have another opportunity, a big opportunity, with the signing of Mookie Betts and David Price to get back in that same position and actually win this time. And that leads me to the blockbuster trade that happened, then didn't happen, then happened. L.A. adds Betts, who is one of the game's most dynamic players. He's a four-time gold glove right fielder. And Price, who won 16 games in 2018 and is expected to fill the middle of the rotation, the middle spot of the rotation with Clayton Kershaw and budding ace Walker Bueller. Every sports fan knows that Betts is a rare talent, and it's extremely rare for a player of his caliber to trade teams. Boston, by the way, made it very clear that they wanted him for the rest of his career, but he knew he wanted the max money when he went into free agency. The Dodgers now, with all of that being said, are very close. They haven't won a title since 1988, but they've unarguably been baseball's strongest and most consistent franchise for about seven years now. Seven years that is too fresh in my mind, but looking back at those seven years, seven straight division titles, seven straight seasons with at least 91 wins, 671 wins, which is 33 more than any other team, 5,219 runs, 10th overall, third most in the NL, and 4,235 runs allowed, which is 259 fewer than any other team. And what I meant by the Dodgers' past seven years being too fresh in my memory is, yes, they've done so much great. But with all the heartbreak that they've faced, you know that team is hungrier than ever. And one article I read last week said it perfectly with this edition of Betts. Betts makes the Dodgers a little bit more contact-friendly and a little more likely to cash in once he's on the base paths. And that's something they struggled with. They had... I forgot exactly what the stat was, but they had like 70 games where they went run. They had no runs. So despite all the greatness that they had, they were also struggling with having just too many players that had a similar, had a similar niche, had a similar talent, and that became a block for them. Everyone was shooting for the stars. No one was mixing it up offensively when they went up to the plate. But overall. Great addition to the Dodgers, and cheers to spring training. Moving on, I'm going to replay an interview I did a couple months ago here. There are some other big-time guests planned for the show, but what better way to kick it all off than with my first big-time interview, Alex Faust, play-by-play announcer for the Los Angeles Kings. We talked about his new position with the franchise and just the direction the NHL is headed and plenty, plenty more. Here it is. A first-time guest on the show, and in fact, the first guest to ever join me is the play-by-play talent for the Los Angeles Kings going on his third season, Alex Faust. I cannot extend my gratitude enough for you taking the time to talk with me today. No problem at all. This is um, I'm excited to be here and glad to be the first guest on your show. <laughs> yes, the first guest, so no pressure. Just to start off, I can't imagine an organization like the LA Kings not looking long-term for their broadcast talent. I mean, you're, of course, familiar with the icons, Bob Miller, Vin Scully, Chick Hearn. And being as young as you are with already a quote-unquote dream job, do you see yourself committing your entire career already to an organization? Yeah, uh, it's a pretty simple answer because these jobs don't come around all that often. And especially with 
organizations that are uh, just as well run and, and as uh, family centric as the LA Kings. I mean, it's just it, you, you use the term dream job, and it's it's definitely a dream not only because of where I'm at in the National Hockey League, but also just because of the people I get to work with on a daily basis and the place that I get to be in on a daily basis. So you can't, you know, while you always have to look forward and, and I do carve out opportunities to try to grow as a broadcaster and improve uh, and, and try different things. Uh, at the same time, you know, this, this is an amazing opportunity and uh, I plan on being here for a long, long time. One thing that can be so easily lost in the TV or sports casting business is that humility. And it sounds like you're not only the opposite of that, but just so eager to learn. And you know your place in L.A. You know that you're following the career of Bob Miller. So is that something that you're constantly conscious about? You know, I try not to think about it too much. I think if you get caught up in who was before you and kind of the history of the position on a day-to-day basis, then it can get a little bit daunting and overwhelming. And I know early on here, I, I put so much pressure on myself to to just achieve and and to call games at, at such a high level. But at the end of the day, I know that I'm also growing into this role that um, you know, walking in day one, I wasn't going to know everything there was to know about King's history. Uh, you know, I could probably pass a written quiz, but you just you have to be around. The sport, you have to be around the team for a long period of time to be able to uh, absorb all of that, but also to appreciate the uh, the history of the franchise and a lot of the key moments along the way, but also just to understand the fans. There's one thing that um, impressed me right away here was how loyal the fan base is, is here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think getting to know the fans over the last two years has given me an even deeper appreciation of how lucky I am uh, to be a part of this family. With Bob Miller, he he was always my idol, and I grew up only knowing of Bob Miller. But he did go to the University of Iowa, which is me go- me going to Iowa State. That's what you would know as like the Boston College Boston University oh, yes. rivalry. So it was always hard to accept that I had to once I decided I was going to Iowa State that I was going to have to continue to love and admire a Hawkeye. So. For me as a L.A. Kings fan, I'm, I'm personally happy that I have someone from Northeastern and, and over on the East Coast now and not, not a Hawkeye. Well, you know, it's one thing that I've actually had to learn a little bit in the, uh, in the broadcasting realm is that even, even now, even though I'm the voice of a team, you kind of have to detach yourself a little bit and set aside uh, you know, rooting interests or – um, you know, even if you're a fan of, let's say, a, a college team, you know, that's not your day-to-day anymore. You are the voice of a professional sports team, and being the voice does not necessarily mean being a fan. It means telling the story of this team and telling it in their voice. So it's, it, it's one thing that with time, you get to know the nuances a little bit of the sport. And I think you talk to any broadcaster in the NHL, and they'll tell you that they want to do a professional job. They want to cater to their audience. Um, but that at the end of the day, you know, you can't be a fan necessarily on air. You can certainly be passionate about your team, but you can't you know, veer too far in the direction of, of fandom because then you lose credibility. So when you're working alongside um, talent like Bob Miller and Jim Fox and, and so forth, I mean, you're in a really 
lucky position because you have some great role models. And I I know Jim Fox once said that he's not going to really be giving you tips on how to play by play. He's the former player and so forth. So I think that's all must be such awesome talent to work besides. Yeah. And I think one area where I've learned a lot is working with uh, an analyst on a regular basis. I used to be a freelancer so I would go from game to game, network to network, and work with different people every time. Sometimes I'd get uh, you know, recurring analysts that I'd work with on an occasional basis, but never the same person over the course of a full season. So you have to kind of learn each other's quirks. You have to learn what makes somebody tick. You also have to learn what their expertise is. And you know, for certain things like uh, when we call replays, I know Jim likes to be very particular with how he gets in and out of a replay. Well, I had to learn that. It's not something that I could just ask him. Well, Jim, how do you start a replay and how do you end a replay? So you have to go in and do it. Um, Absolutely, yeah. One, you know, one of the things that you just you don't know until you experience it is how you're going to react in that live environment. And I've always been so curious. So you had your your experience with play-by-play at Northeastern and then – Uh, in the AHL and so forth. As you mentioned, you were a freelancer. And do you know a lot more about the Kings and about the players um, compared to what you used to know working just in college and and with the AHL? Oh, of course. And and there's no substitute for the actual repetitions of doing the game prep, calling the game, doing it all over again the next day. There's no substitute for that. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is truly learning by doing and uh, you know, going into my third year, I know that there's a lot that I I can bring to the table, and that I know maybe not to do than what I tried in my first two years, um, and vice versa. There's some stuff that I know that I could pull out of the bag that maybe my first season I wouldn't have felt as confident in doing. So it, it just it it takes time, and and it's I think for young broadcasters especially, they look at it and say, you know, we're what does it take to get to the next level? Uh, it, you just have to learn by doing. And sometimes it means doing something that's out of your comfort zone. I know my audition with Fox Sports was not doing basketball or hockey or football or anything else. It was doing a college lacrosse game. I knew nothing about college lacrosse. But I had to get out of my comfort zone. I had to um, you know, do the prep, um, immerse myself in the sport, and just be comfortable with it, even though it was something that – I was not comfortable with uh, in the weeks leading up to that game. But, uh, you know, same with the NHL. <laughs> I've called hockey, but never at the yeah. NHL level before. And you, know, mm-hmm. you don't know what it's like until you actually do it. You know, with the rise of digital media and social media, it's lucky for people like me because I get to see kind of inside the booth, whether it be your Instagram story or just pieces of your game prep and your notes. And they're awesome, I have to say. How long do you typically prepare for a game or before a season? I know you just said a lot of it is just doing, but there is a lot of prep work when it comes to actual analytics of the game. Well, and I think a lot of it for us in the TV world, that is knowing the backstory of each and every one of our players. And I have to have that down first. Before my first season, I really spent a lot of my time on just our team. Then we could flesh out some of the other teams. And this year, I've kind of taken the approach of, all right, I've seen two years with the organization. I know our guys pretty well. Now I can go out and, and do a little bit more in the off season on other teams. So I've actually started going through for all 31 teams, building out uh, rosters and depth charts for all those teams. 
that way they're available to me during the year and I don't have to spend as much time building each team during the season. I can actually hone in on our stories a little bit more during the year and try to catalog, catalog uh, everything that we do a little bit better. So it's just, again, a little nuance along the way. Um, but in terms of hours uh, for preparation, it depends on the game. You know, if, if it's an opponent that I've seen recently, you know, maybe just a handful of hours. If it's a team that has completely overhauled their roster since the last time I've seen them, well, then, you know, it's 10, 12-plus hours just for that one game. Uh, and I would say doing a league like the NHL where you see teams over and over is a lot easier than doing a college football game, which is 30 to 40 hours worth just for one game, and then you got to do it all over again. Have you seen that time frame lessen since your 17-18 season with the Kings? Oh, no doubt. Uh, because you learn what not to use, and you learn what's just not necessary to I think like anything else, when you when you go into a new job and you want to impress, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to do a good job, and sometimes you can over-prepare with things that aren't necessary and not a good use of your time. Uh, and you get a lot of information that you think you have to use. And at the end of the day, simplicity can rule the day. And I think uh, over the first two years, that's the one thing I've learned is that to keep it simple – uh, you really can't go wrong. So kind of venturing away now from uh, the sports casting side of things, I want your perspective on this, especially as a broadcaster, because I think this really does affect how you might call a game. And I could be completely wrong, but I know how I feel as a consumer of the game. But next season, the NHL plans to enable player and puck tra- tracking technology. And for those that don't know, in the words of Gary Bettman, it's instantaneously detecting passes, shots, and um, positioning, and it'll be equally accurate in tracking players, their movement, speed, etc. We saw a little bit of it with the 2019 All-Star Game. What does that mean for you as a broadcaster? Do you know much about what that'll be like? Well, we don't know quite the application on the broadcast side. Like I said, we got a taste of the All-Star Game of what the capabilities are. Uh, but I know all the Fox sports regional networks are going to have their hands on the data once it's available. I think we're going to tread with caution because we don't want to overwhelm the viewer. There's so much that you can take from it. I think the one lesson that I might try to glean from that data would be um, shot mapping. Uh, that, that seems like an area that we could really improve on in the NHL in terms of capturing that data. And it's actually it's, it's been fun to do tennis because that's a sport that's really embraced uh, data uh, and tracking in real time of player movement, ball movement. Um, that sport has done a really good job with 3D visualization of data and being able mm-hmm. to slice down to very small increments during a live match. And I think hockey could take a couple of lessons from it, but it's going to take a while. It's, it's a sport that for a long time didn't do a good job cataloging its own statistics and only recently archived the entire history of the league on their website, uh, nhl.com slash stats. Only in the last year and a half has put all 100-plus years uh, worth of box scores and and player stats. Mm -hmm. This is a relatively new area for the NHL. How often are you getting in contact or getting comments from consumers of the game in, in their opinion of what's going to come of it? Oh, it veers in both directions. I hear from people who are like, stick with the, the game. We don't need to be overwhelmed with numbers. And then I hear, especially from younger fans, hey, you know, I'm interested in the analytics. And it, it is such a big part of our game now. But uh, I, I do think we have to tread with caution uh, 
just not to try to overwhelm the viewer at first, but also just to get it right. You know, we, at the end of the day, we don't want to throw stuff out there that won't be good. Uh, I know Fox is a, as a network, uh, has always prided itself on trying to be out in front of technological advances. And I think they'll, they'll try to push it to start, but, but we'll, be cautious about overwhelming viewers for sure. My last question for you also outside of the LA Kings question is I want your take on NHL expansion. I know that's kind of loaded, so I'll try to narrow down my question for you, but you've seen the success of the Las Vegas Golden Knights, right? Their first season doing great and then people having to uh, see how they do, you know, moving on. And now with Seattle potentially, or it, and they are getting a team. Is that correct? It's not potential anymore. Yeah. So they, it is uh, 2021. They're scheduled to get a team. 2021. So I guess just what are your, do you predict a similar outcome with just how the new expansion draft is um, for Seattle to have the same success? Or do you think it was really the Vegas Golden Knights that did the things right in the front office and gave themselves their own success? I think it'd be hard to capture lightning in a bottle and go to the Stanley Cup final in your first year like they did. It was a variety of circumstances, not just the players that they acquired, but also uh, after the tragic shooting uh, in Las Vegas to begin that season, the team really rallied around the community and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an effect that I happened to live in Boston at the time in 2013, and there was kind of a, a similar effect there. I remember the, the, uh, uh, the bombs that exploded at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Red Sox really uh, took to rallying around the community and in all of New England, the, the healing process from that, and surged all the way to the World Series. I think it's kind of a similar situation in Las Vegas. Now in Seattle, they will have the same expansion draft rules. I think GMs have learned a little bit on not um, going all out to protect players um, the same way that they did before. I think they um, made some mistakes in terms of hanging on to certain contracts. You know, and who's to say that Seattle won't find a way, uh, much like Vegas did, in unearthing mm-hmm. players that uh, were overlooked previously and turning them into stars? I mean, nobody saw William Carlson putting up the numbers that he did. Mm-mm. So I'd say it's fully within the realm of possibility that they'll make the playoffs and they'll be a competitive team their first year. I think that's what the NHL wants, really, is for Seattle to come right in and not behave like expansion teams of the past uh, and be competitive right away. It is exciting to see. It's a little bit uh, different. It's such a new playing field, but it's all all good stuff. And I like that you um, referred to the NHL's vision because I think that they do see things a lot greater than us as consumers see. I have one more question for you. It's not a question. It's more of a comment. And then we could wrap up the interview there. And um, I just have to ask, because for most people, their idols are professional athletes or musical artists, but mine are more in line with your career. And I know a lot of people would agree with me that are in my same field. And so I apologize if this question isn't as fun to answer for you, but it's fun to hear. Just what does a normal day, maybe a game day look like for you in terms of your morning routine, getting to the arena and closing out a day after a post game show and so forth. Sure. It's actually, I think remarkably similar to the routines that I had in college. And even in the minor leagues, uh, we have a morning skate, usually at 10 o'clock in the morning for home games or 1130 for road games. 
we'll venture down to the arena with the team, usually on the team bus, uh, watch skate just to pick up on any big lineup changes. We'll talk to the guys in the room after that. I'll, I'll take down a couple of notes, a couple of nuggets that they gave us, but nothing usually all that big. Um, usually grab a, a quick lunch, finish up some notes, print out my, uh, my material for the game, uh, and then we have a bus for the road games, usually from the hotel at about 4 o'clock for a 7 o'clock game. At home, I try to get to the arena a little bit earlier, um, say about uh, three and a half hours before puck drop. But it's just mm-hmm. to be in the right frame of mind, be relaxed, have enough time to have a production meeting, uh, talk to our producer, talk with Jim, um, you know, write down any last-minute things that I need to know. And then we hit the ground running. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's kind of a, it, you develop a, a rhythm and a routine when you're at home and on the road. I think at the end of the day, as, as I mentioned, keep it as simple as possible. If you try to overcomplicate with too many things, then your mind's going to be a little bit scattered. And being in as clear a frame of mind as possible is probably the most important thing. And with more nationally broadcasted games this year, I'm sure that's also uh, another thing to look forward to for the season. Yeah, uh, I, I'm excited to go back to working with NBC Sports. Uh, got to work on my first playoff series last year and hopefully more in the future. All right. Thank you so much, Alex, for your time. I appreciate it. All of your answers are so helpful and um, exciting just to see what you have going on and so forth. And go Kings, go. Thanks, Mary. Appreciate it. All right. That's it for this edition of the Hail Mary podcast every Wednesday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next Wednesday, I'm Mary Rominger, and this is the Hail Mary podcast.